Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This show is brought to you in part by the Art of Charm podcast. Everyone, and I mean everyone, can get better at communicating and connecting with others. And doing so can significantly improve every aspect of your life. Job interviews, love and marriage, creative collaboration, all of these things depend on interpersonal skills. The Art of Charm podcast is a fun, practical, powerful, and best of all, totally free way to up your game while you're commuting to work or doing the dishes. It's fun to listen to and packed with immediately usable advice from people who know what they're talking about, including leading psychologists, Navy SEALs, management gurus, and more. So go to theartofcharm.com forward slash podcast or find The Art of Charm in iTunes or Stitcher and start taking your life to the next level. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Big Think is an online forum for big ideas from the world's most creative thinkers and doers. With the Think Again podcast, we're in brave new territory. Each week, our producers dig up short interview clips on every imaginable subject from Big Think's archives. They're a total surprise to my guests and to me. Today, I'm joined by one of my favorite artists in the world, Myra Kalman. You've probably seen her many New Yorker covers, her hilarious, thought-provoking columns in That Magazine and The New York Times combine words and images in surprising ways. She's also written and illustrated many books for children and adults. Her latest is Beloved Dog. Welcome to Think Again, Myra. Thank you very much. Do you think there's such a thing as dog people and cat people? Do you believe in that? I think there are people who like cats and there are people who like dogs. Yeah, so I don't know what that means in terms of personalities. Do we like people who like dogs more than we like people who like cats? I'm not going to say. Your book, you know, it sounds like you weren't always a dog person, and then you became a dog person. Were you a cat person or a nothing No, I was a non-animal person. person. Though we, we, there were some interactions with animals in our past, a hamster here and there, a fish. I didn't really make it for very long. But basically, we were not an animal family. You write in paint in a very original way about dogs and their role in our lives. Like, normally I would not be interested in a dog book, but your dog Neither book would is I. very interesting. <laughs> yeah. So how did you approach this? Like, why write a dog book? Clearly, I'm obsessed with dogs. They're endlessly funny, and they don't talk, which is extremely interesting to me, how much you can communicate with a being that doesn't talk. And so I put them into almost every painting I've done, over the last 30 years or something like that. So it seemed that I had a wealth of dog paintings. And then it was interesting exercise to talk about this dog that I have and write the memoir of my family and why he came into our lives. 
I think a lot about the notion of unconditional love. And I think if, if you have a child or you have a family or you know anybody on the planet Earth, the best thing you could give them in this world is unconditional love. That is what happens when you have a dog. You might have a complex relationship with people, right. clearly. But with a dog, there's something very pure and very simple and so elemental. You're a New Yorker. Um, as a fellow New Yorker, what would you say to those of us who are anxious that it is cruel to have a dog in a New York apartment? <laughs> Did you have dog walkers <laughs> coming? Were you, you were home. Working. I was home most of the time. Yeah. I mean, there were, there were some occasions when we went away, and so the dog went to a dog sitting place and <laughs> came back with a painting, a finger painting or paw painting. Yeah. And, you know, people always say, well, how did he do there? And I said, well, he never complained. You know, he never said it wasn't, it wasn't going well. You know, you, you have to have a little bit of a sense of humor about all sure. of these things. So we live in New York, we have apartments, and we live with our pets. So hopefully things are working out reasonably. Dogs are adaptable. I mean, they, that's how they've ended up being companions to humans, <laughs> evolutionarily speaking. So I guess maybe they can adjust to New York, too. That's true. That's why they don't talk back or they don't rip your face off the, the right. way I originally thought it. Right. <laughs> Some of them do rip your face yeah. off, but those we, ones we won't we won't get. We won't, we won't go over those. Or, yeah. Okay. Cool. So, quick recap. This is how Think Again works. Our producers chose a few short interview clips for us to listen yeah. to. They could be on any subject, and they're a surprise <laughs> to me too. Are we ready to watch? I'm ready. Them and yeah. Discuss? Let's see what happens. All right. Cool. This is called Outsider Thinking, What Doctors Can Learn from Artists. Okay, so this is a little bit within your mm -hmm, specialty. Right, right, right. And the artist here is Raghava KK. So when I told my uncle, who is a doctor, that I'm speaking at TED Med, he said, has the profession suffered some cardiovascular uh, attack? I said, no, 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 no. Art and science are not that different. To begin with, we both stare at naked bodies a lot. But... I also told him both of us are finding ways to articulate ourselves, our lives, who we are. And so I went on to explaining to him that we don't have to be competing with each other. I really believe that art and science complement one another, are really not that different in, in their objective, just they're different in the way they approach it. For example, even in my own work, I always leave wide spaces for participation of my viewers. And the role of the spectator changes from being an, someone who buys art, to someone who sees it, to someone who participates in it. When you treat a patient as someone who's not partaking in their own care, and their own health care, there's an issue. You have to leave the white spaces for them to come and take ownership of their health. I thought I was the outsider at TEDMED, but no, I really don't think I'm that much of an outsider. Hopefully by the end of my time there, I can show them that the outside is also the inside. You know, I suppose there's always a tension between a certain kind of knowledge that people feel they need to attain and the other kind of daydreaming, non-linear, non-specific, non-information-based, non-success-based kind of information. So there are people who are seeking to find their place in the world in, in different ways. I think in the end, I agree that everybody's trying to find a sense of well-being and a sense of meaning. What are we doing here? I wander through in a kind of daydream, and I think that that's probably one of the things that also that my mother allowed me to do as a child, to just to daydream and not to have to conform to any kind of specific way of learning. And the thing that it brings you to is having a sense of humor. And that's something that's so critical 
in investigating our lives, certainly as an artist, and certainly for me, that my sense of having a sense of humor is really important. I don't know how much that plays in the pursuit of being a doctor or of a scientist, whether to have a sense of humor about what you're doing and to look sideways at what you're doing and maybe to look creatively at what you're doing, which is essential, I think, for anybody who's investigating anything. In the end, you know, those things don't have to be at odds, but of course they're just different paths to information. So... I'm happy that doctors actually learn what they're supposed to do because I would be a really horrible doctor. You don't want me to be a doctor. But, <laughs> and, I, you know, and I don't know whether... I don't want a doctor that only has a good bedside manner and is a terrible doctor. But you, but you want to feel that a person is compassionate and benevolent, of course, the, the old things. And you know, your expectation is that a doctor, even though we say rationally it doesn't make sense, that a doctor is a kind of demigod and you really do want them to know everything. And they don't. So then there is this tremendous sense of disappointment. They can't provide you with all of those answers, and it's such a complex thing. So I don't know what to do. (laughs) I'm glad I don't have to. I'm going to cross that off my list of worries. Yeah, no, we don't don't have to really worry about it, I guess. Shall we see what the next one is that they've got for us? Okay, cool. Oh, my God, is that a physics equation? It might be. Oh, my God. Um, ah, don't be afraid. <laughs> I don't know I'm anything about afraid. math either. Yeah, okay, so good. It's okay. Let's stop hating math. Okay, okay so this ah. one is called, yeah, Let's Stop Hating Math with Edward Frankel, who is a mathematician, and he is arguing that we need to embrace math to survive our brave new world. So that's, that's true. That could be good for Same me. That's true, yeah. What is it that distinguishes us from, uh, you know, cavemen? I would say it's the, the level of abstraction that we can reach. To give a simple example, it used to be that there was barter trading, so you would exchange you know, wheat for, for meat or something like this. But then eventually there was an abstract idea, the idea of, of money, of, you know, this is like a piece of paper, but this piece of paper actually signifies, has certain value, and you can exchange it for goods and services. So that's the next level of abstraction. But now we are dealing with even higher level of abstraction, because now money could be nothing but a line of code which appears in a Bitcoin ledger. What I dream of is a society in which, if mathematics is brought up, people don't run away from it. They don't say, oh my gosh, I hate mathematics, I don't want to talk about it, I'm scared, I'm frightened. And I understand why people are scared and frightened. It's not their fault. It's because of how mathematics is taught in our schools. But it's a very unfortunate situation when you can't even begin a conversation about mathematics without people saying, oh my gosh, I don't want to talk about it. And it's kind of strange because no one would ever say, I hate literature, or I hate art, or I hate music. At least intelligent people would never say that. It's kind of shameful to say that. But it's perfectly okay in our society to say, I, I hate mathematics. And I do believe that if we understand better how mathematics works, we will be better equipped to deal with the challenges that you know, this brave new world presents to us. Okay, okay so. so right away I don't understand Bitcoin, I don't understand algorithm. I don't understand Brave New World. It's Scary New World. It's really interesting. He's talking absolutely about me. And me too. Both of us went, ah, when we saw math. Why are we scared of math, Myra? Why are we scared? <laughs> I'm scared let's, of everything. Why are we scared of math? Yeah, let's go back to, uh, let us go back into your childhood, Myra. Why, when uh, did you first yes, become terrified exactly. of math? Exactly. I first became terrified of math after, we, when we left addition and subtraction. <laughs> I went into the insane world of division and then geometry and algebra. I mean, it would be amazing to speak to him because if he said, listen, there is no such thing as a brain that can comprehend a cer- that's wired a certain way. 
everybody's brain can be wired to learn everything. It's just a question of your predisposition and your desire and your curiosity. And so if somebody presented it in a way that wasn't terrifying, but all of a sudden I felt as if I was lost in a world where I didn't understand up from down and right from left. When, you know, when I started getting into more complex math, which is like probably fifth grade, we're talking about really complex math, I didn't understand what was going on and I went into daydreaming mode. So I don't know whether I'm capable of learning math. Yeah, I have the same questions. I mean, I, I don't know that my math teachers were particularly bad or worse at their jobs than my English teachers, but pretty early on I decided like I was a literature person and not a math yeah. person. But at the same time, like it turns out a lot of young women see themselves as not math people early on in the same classes where the boys do and like it's not clear that that's biologically innate right. and so then it's like okay what's going on there what's going on it's true what's going on and the lack of self-confidence that develops in a girl in those early teen years clearly girls lose some level of self-confidence that boys don't seem to lose in the same radical way, though of course things are going on for boys too. So yeah. I don't know what it means to need the tools of mathematics to, to deal with this new world. We have to call him. <laughs> Where does he live? I know. Yeah. I wish we could get him on the phone yeah. right now. What good would come of me not being afraid of math? what I want to ask. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, like, would I think more clearly and more logically than I do? Would that be a good thing? You know? And you know, if you said to a mathematician, why don't you, uh, why don't you sit down and write a children's book or a novel? They may go, well, I could po never possibly do that. So, you know, on one level, the parallels of what you feel comfortable or interested in in this world, I think, well, you have a limited amount of time, so do what you love. And I do often say I hate art. Why do, you, why do you say that? Because I think when it becomes an imperative, when you are supposed to do something in a specific way, I think it's a burden. For me, going to a museum is one of the glorious moments in life, but also leaving the museum and going to a hardware store and looking at a ladder is a glorious moment in life, and having a cup of coffee in a, in a cafe is a glorious moment in life. So again, to remove the imperative of what you're obliged to know, you know, I had the experience as a young adult. I went to graduate school and I had to take a reasonably challenging statistics course. And it was a very interesting experience for me. Like, as you were saying, like, not being in that place of I suck, I can't do this, something is wrong with me, I'm broken, but rather kind of suspending the need to understand every single thing about it and being okay with sort of what I didn't get I don't know if that goes anywhere for you, but like... You know, the, I think that it's a conversation about the process of how do you go from not knowing to knowing in a way that feels non-threatening. And that's why I say when I'm laughing about not knowing, I say my goal is to always be laughing. Do you lose the laughter once you become too good at something? Do you lose that sense of, really that sense of lack of balance, the absurdity of it all, right. the digressions that we all make? So I'm worried... I'm worried that I'll get it, and then I'll lose some kind of naivete and delight. Okay, so on that note, this guy is Kevin Dutton. He is a psychologist, I believe, and he is talking James about James Bond. So I'm sure there will be Taking some, risks. some spark in there. Yeah. This show is brought to you in part by the Art of Charm podcast. 
Who knew that plays well with others would turn out to be the most important thing on your childhood report card? Whatever you're trying to achieve in your life, it depends on connecting with and persuading other people. So why is that the one thing they don't teach you in school? Instead, we think of charisma as this mystical, elusive force that you either have or you don't. Nonsense. The Art of Charm podcast offers practical, immediately usable advice for networking, public speaking, negotiation, finance, fitness, and more based on solid clinical psychology and tested, replicable, real-world success, not pop psych speculation. Also, it's a thoroughly entertaining listen. There's nothing manipulative or magical about becoming a better communicator. It's a set of skills you can learn, and there's no good reason to spend your life held back by bad interpersonal habits. Go to theartofcharm.com forward slash podcast or find The Art of Charm in iTunes or Stitcher and start taking your life to the next level. And now let's get back to Think Again. I've been giving out a questionnaire which tests the presence of psychopathic traits within members of the general population. I've been giving it out to uh, friends of mine who are film critics, actually. I've been asking them to rate various iconic figures in film for where they, uh, where they fall on various characteristics. And uh, if we take, say, the iconic spy figure James Bond, the British uh, Secret Service agent 007 himself, you find that James Bond is probably one of the most nailed-down functional psychopaths that there is. I mean, James Bond is ruthless. He's, of course, uh, uh, absolutely without conscience and remorse. He's one of the biggest philanderers that's ever worked for the British Secret Service, although I couldn't say that uh, hand on heart officially, but I do know some of them. I mean, James Bond is absolutely one of the classic examples of a functional psychopath. Those characteristics are being used to benefit society. I've interviewed uh, a lot of Special Forces soldiers. And, uh, you know, what? in Special Forces, you can't afford to dwell on the fact that you've pulled the trigger and killed someone. You know, if you do, then the next bullet could be going through your head. So you have to be very emotionally detached in kind of professions like that. I mean, I think it was the writer George Orwell once wrote that good men sleep soundly in their beds at night because rough men stand ready to do violence on their behalf. And I think this is exactly why we need figures such as James Bond who, who you know, with a bit of poetic license do exist in real life and why we need uh, certain special forces troops as well. I love him. He has such a smile. At, well, we were looking at it. He has such a smile on his face. But he has such a smile on, in his voice too. It was very funny. Yeah, the audience can't see. These are video clips, uh, but we're watching them here in the studio. And the whole time that we were watching Kevin Dutton, Myra was lit up with delight at his affect. Y- you were feeling him. You know, it's interesting. I was going to say that clearly none of the special forces and none of the James Bond characters are Jewish because then we were talking about, you know, being neurotic <laughs> and Talk about not being upset if you pull the trigger. I mean, it's just like, I would be upset if I think I insulted somebody and would obsess about it and brood about it for a year. You know, so what are the uh, neurotic aspects of a psychopath as opposed to a a Jew? Oh, (laughs) that's really funny. We're going to investigate that. No, that's funny that you should say that. I think we should investigate it a little bit only because... Um, I, no, there I are Jewish psychopaths, I just want to say. Just saying. You were born in Israel, yeah? Yeah. And yeah, yeah. you left when you were like four yeah. or something, right? Um, yes. Israel is a really interesting case study. I mean, I don't want to get into the politics too deep, but you have a people historically oppressed who then are in charge of a country in a very sort of difficult place in the world to be. And you see a lot of these traits, you know, you see 
IDF soldiers and Netanyahu like perfectly prepared to be kind of ruthless and right. I guess we're not talking about Woody Allen. Uh, okay, let me just think. What you know, the 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 sense of guilt, the sense uh, guilt is a really big deal. And how guilty do you feel about what? And why is there free floating guilt in the sense of that something bad happened across the world? Clearly, I had something to do with it, which is a little bit like a megalomaniac, also. But I don't know whether that comes from a certain ra- a certain religion, a certain race being persecuted through the centuries, and you kind of keep saying, I don't know, what did I do? What did I do? But clearly something was amiss. So, And maybe there's the outsider thing. Do I really belong? Where do I belong? And the displacement and people flung from their homes. And clearly it's such a huge issue in the Middle East. So, I mean, we won't even... We don't even go there right now. We don't have, we don't have you know, 200 years to discuss this. But I'm not entirely sure I agree with him that... I mean, A, is it necessary that we should have people in this world behaving in ways that require them to become inhuman sociopaths? Is that actually necessary for running the world? Yes. You think so? Okay. I think the world as we know it, the world as we've seen it for the last several thousand years, yeah. I think that there are maniacs and there are wars and unjust situations and people having to defend themselves I guess you have, there are situations where you need to defend the sense of honor and freedom. So there are people who are willing, incomprehensibly, and I think it's extraordinary, they're willing to fight for those things that many of us would say, I couldn't even begin to fathom doing that. So this is not a, you know, a great exaltation of violence, but I think that clearly it's part of our world. In the ideal world, there would be no war, no violence, no hostility, and then there is, and then people suffer in such tremendous ways, so some people will be destroyed by it, and some people will go on and be great humanitarians. It's, yeah, I so don't... These, these are subjects that are profoundly large. Oh, yeah. I mean, do we have philosopher generals in this world at this point? Like, do they exist? <laughs> Or are most of them just... Tacticians? Mosul is here and we must move 6,000 units. I think think that people who are in those positions of power, there has to be some kind of philosophical element to them. I imagine, maybe I'm thinking about it too altruistically or benignly, but I think that you can't not be thinking about the consequences of what you're doing. It's like Abraham, Abraham Lincoln was an extraordinary philosopher and yet had to deploy this massive, massive war. Right. Which killed so many people and put the country in, on the brink of annihilation in order to save it. So you could say, what if it hadn't happened? What if he didn't pursue the course that he did so passionately? And he was also an extraordinary humanitarian, an extraordinary philosopher. Yeah, um, I mean... In the end, you know, we say, as we said in the beginning, nobody knows nothing, but, <laughs> but yeah. I don't know. I have more faith in general in the intellectual capacity of people who even have different philosophical opinions than me. I don't think, well, obviously they haven't thought at all. I think they're thinking a different path, but they're thinking. I think that's a really important and generous way to think and hard to think like that, you know. Just have to go visit an army base, you know, that sense of, I don't feel as if I'm connected to the population of an army base in the South in the United States, but go there and in a second, all of your cliches are dispelled. You really have to take it person by person, always. Because in the end, none of us knows nothing, right? Who said that? (laughs) (laughs) I think that was Myra Kalman, artist. 
Myra, it has been so wonderful having you on Think Again. Thank you so much for talking with me about all these very varied subjects. Thank you very much. Good to be here. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. I want to take a second just to thank all of you out there for listening, especially to thank the people who have taken a few minutes to go rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever they're listening. We have over 100 ratings on iTunes at this point and tons of comments, and it's very gratifying to hear from you all what you think about the show and and what you're liking and what you want to hear more of or less of. So thank you again. Please join me next week when I speak with Sam Harris, author, neuroscientist, and collaborator with Majid Nawaz on a new book called Islam and the Future of Tolerance. See you next week.